Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Darken the door. Usually rock stars in at 9.30 in the morning, but Mr. Weisenthal has greeted us this morning on this important story. I just got all flamed up. Somebody called it a currency. I said, no way. There's no way this is a currency. Our article even says it's going to be based off securities. Is it a currency? It's currency-ish. Ish. Yeah. Jamie Dimon doesn't care about ish. Jerome Powell and Randy Quarles at the Fed don't care about ish. There, Why is Zuckerberg different from anybody else that's gone down in flames? There is going to be a thing called Libra. Presumably, you will have a wallet that has an X number of Libra in it. So yeah. in that sense, it's, that's why I say it's currency-ish. On the other hand... It's backed by traditional financial assets, probably right. no fiat currencies and government bonds and banks. And if you think about it, if you look at your, any wallet that we use that's digital or any credit card or anything, right. what is it okay. but a digital number that's represented Bruno by something Bruno else? Bruno Le is out today, the French finance minister, saying, yeah, right. I'm in name the country. I've got $582,000. I got to get in the United States. This sounds like a gift from God. I think that, um, you know, this is the key thing, which is that Traditional cryptocurrencies, they're designed to be decentralized, permissionless, so that I can oh, send something they're, to you. They're designed as an agent for criminals. This, I just put it the nice way, but you put it the... Yeah. Uh, this is clearly this not... Is morning TV. We're not nice. This is not <clears throat> designed for that, and they make very clear in the, um, in the white paper and their documents that anyone dealing with this, any exchanges that list it, wallets, have to deal with traditional banking regulations, which means that it's much less like a traditional cryptocurrency as we know them and much more like a lot of the payment apps that we use Let, already. Let's bring in the nice one. Francine right, but Joe... Lacroix. Yes. No, the nice one, the nice one who's in the doghouse, Joe, because I'm the one calling it cryptocurrency on air. And Tom was like, no, it's not a currency. But actually what it means is that by 2020, I'm going to have a mobile phone right. and I'll be able to use a payment system. So for the nerds out there, we can call it whatever, you, you know, the digital wallet package that Facebook is going to introduce, right. whatever Tom wants. But is it going to get traction? And when can you find out whether there's going to be traction? Is it the first <laughs> two months, six months? Does it take longer? I mean, here's the thing. And this is the bold case, which is that there is no entity in the entire world that has Facebook size and global distribution. Agreed. And that is an enormous leg up. And so you have these payment networks all around the world, like M-Peso mm. or WeChat or Venmo or PayPal or whatever. It's fragmented, however. There's just no entity right. that exists that is huge virtually right. everywhere, essentially everywhere outside of China, the way that Facebook is. So if you were to able to layer on top of that a payment network, in theory, that could be really big and unify okay. global payments in a way that nothing else quite yeah. has before. That but would Joe, be, I would say, the is, bulk. Is this, right, so is this a medium for payments, right? And if, if it is a medium for payments, does it cut out the riffraff that Tom was talking about? I mean, it is a medium for payments. It will attempt to cut out the riffraff because there's money backed up by traditional financial institutions, because a Libra is backed mm -hmm. up by dollars and pounds and euros and yen or whatever in a bank. They're going to have to comply with traditional anti-money laundering regulations, anti-capital control uh, or capital control regulations. If it were to turn out that people could use Libra to evade these things, then I think regulators would attempt to shut down the uh, project pretty quickly. 
Okay, but, but I'm holding up in my phone, Joe Weisenthal. I want to go to Sebastian Gelly on this. Zell from a bunch of banks. I can move money around already with banks. Why do I need this, Sebastian? Why do we need Facebook coin? Because you want to avoid capital controls. And uh, <laughs> what when may happen is... Oh, my word. Continue. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not pretty. In essence, it makes sense to have a unit of transaction, but that's called the dollar. That's what we use worldwide. So if you try to replace it by something else, which is linked implicitly to the dollar, maybe so some other things, you're trying to get some of that liquidity out. It might work in some small economies such as for example you're sitting in Bolivia or something like this right. there's a lot of demand for dollars then there might be a yeah. lot of demand for Libras also. What are you going to ask Mr. Marcus today? I mean I, I, I think the Bloomberg coverage on this has been very responsible. What are you going to ask Mr. Marcus today? I mean I'm going to ask him exactly about that. So if a uh, someone in Bolivia or Venezuela or anywhere wants to obtain Libra for the purpose of, say, moving money in and out of the country, evading capital controls, whatever it is, how are they going to stop it? Will this currency be able to be used for that? Because if not, or if it can't be stopped, then I think the law enforcement in those countries is not going to be very happy. Joe, who's going to regulate this thing? Is it, you know, central banks? Is it, it's, we don't know, right? I mean, but, that is the you know, challenge. Facebook isn't going to regulate it themselves. Right. I mean, that's the issue. So, Tom held up his Zelle app, which is designed to be intra the U.S. and the regulatory... Oh, it's designed to give money to children. Continue. Right. But <laughs> it's all based in U.S. <laughs> banks, and the regulators of a U.S.-based payment app are pretty straightforward. It's U.S. regulators, it's the Fed, and so forth. But when you start yeah. thinking about how something like that could be made equivalent on a global scale, I think the regulatory thicket that Facebook right. is walking into is going to be pretty unimaginable. Joe Weisenthal, thank you so much. I think we need to find someone expert on monetary theory, linking it into the economy, linking it into what we do every day, that also has a good understanding of Germanic culture and society, and possibly also is an expert on presidential tweets. And, and maybe worked at a central bank once upon a time. That would be good. Fantastic bio. Yeah. Pleased to say we found someone that fits it. Adam Posen, Peterson Institute president. He joins us from Sintra, Portugal. Good day to you, Adam. He's going to have an empty office, good. right? Good day, John. Good day. Good day, Tom. Thank you so can, much can, for the Can intro. we start with the prospect of an emptier office over at the Peterson Institute? It wasn't missed by many people that actually <clears throat> Olivier Blanchard delivered the opening speech in oh. Sintra, Portugal yesterday evening, Adam. There is some chatter that perhaps he could be maybe in the running to be the next ECB president. Your thoughts on that, Adam? He would obviously deserve it if they were willing to, <coughs> excuse me, if they were willing to consider academics, um, but they're clearly not. It's it's clearly among people who are already central bank governors in the euro system or maybe deputy governors. So in an ideal world, yeah, I would give up the office of Olivier and or let him use my office to be yeah, East and West, <laughs> but, um, but uh, that's not yeah. running. We have our textbooks, Dr. Posen. None of what's on my Bloomberg screen is in the textbooks, and it's not funny. We've got an economic theory in search of a solution buttressed up against a financial system in crisis. Are you surprised that we're back to QE, 3, 4, whatever it is? 
QE5 Plus. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised, Tom, because we've a number of us have been worrying, rightly, that when we get to the next recession, whatever it is, that there wasn't much room to do with normal interest rate cuts. And some of us, at least, have been arguing for some time that QE should never have been as demonized as it was. The sad part is what you say. It's not even the yield curve. It's just that the 10-year rate is so low and as Larry Summers and others have argued, that represents just total lack of investment appetite, total lack of private sector growth momentum. I think that's the reality. That's not a monetary reality. That's an overall reality. Adam, I know you wanted to weigh in on the president's thoughts this morning. So for our listeners that maybe just tuned in, I'll repeat the tweet from the president in the last hour. Mario Draghi just announced more stimulus could come, which immediately dropped the euro against the dollar, making it unfairly easier for them to compete against the United States. They have been getting away with this for years, along with China and others. Adam, your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's about as unfounded as the average President Trump tweet, regrettably. Um you know, the U.S. Fed cut rates and did QE in 2008, 9, 10, and the rest of the world screamed, oh, my God, Brazil, India, China, you're unfairly cutting the dollar against us. And no, they were just the U.S. Fed was doing the right thing, looking after its own economy. What the ECB did, it wasn't targeted at the U.S. It wasn't targeted at trade. It was Mario Draghi constraining his successor and setting forward the fact that the ECB will continue to pursue a reflationary policy, and I think that was exactly the right thing to do, and it would be much worse for the U.S. if the EU, UK, if the EU didn't do that. If the euro area didn't do that and fell into trouble, you'd lose a lot more net exports to Europe, and you'd lose a lot more asset values. Adam, I mean, President Trump, to, sorry. Just to jump in, sorry, Adam, we spoke yeah. to Sebastian Galli of Nordea Asset Management that thinks mm-hmm. perhaps the president isn't entirely off base. If we recall in 2014 when the ECB adopted a negative deposit rate, it was to look at the FX channel. And there is some belief this morning that maybe that's the primary tool once again to get inflation expectations higher. What are your thoughts on that, Adam? Well, they're not directly intervening, let alone manipulating currencies. They're setting a domestic monetary policy. If it has an effect on the exchange rate, it's then up to the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Japan, and for that matter, the People's Bank of China, to decide, okay, given that, should we react? And so there's uh, nothing the ECB prevents other, other central banks from loosening as well. Adam Posen with us, folks, the Peterson Institute. Thrilled he could be with us. And we see markets on the move. The two-year yield not back to a 180 yet, but 1.81, lower by a solid six basis points. I'm watching yen. It has not moved. That is the the headline, 108.29, slightly stronger yen. Adam Posen, within all of this talk of economics is the real economy in Rule 1, Friedrich Hayek is you got to clear out the debris. Maybe with Schumpeter, there's got to be a little bit of creative destruction of bad debt gone wrong. Are we suffering for the fact we haven't cleared out the ills of 2008? I think we're suffering more from the fact that we started having ills in 2004, Tom. As many people, including John Fernald, who used to be at the Fed San Francisco, have yeah. argued you know, the productivity growth rate in the U.S. downshifted, and in the rest of the Western world and Japan, downshifted roughly around 2004. Yeah. And we're still suffering for the fact that we haven't found something, the next big thing in Michael Lewis terms, to invest in. And yeah, there's probably some 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 detritus in the economy, but on the other hand, you've got monopoly well, oligopoly issues, which are regulatory. They're not because of low rates. 
I think so. I know people keep going back to that, but like Anil Kashyap said at the Fed conference in Chicago a week ago, I keep quoting people because I want to say I'm not out on a limb here. Uh, Neil Kashyap of Chicago said, you know, we, we had a supervisory regulatory problem, so let's do that better. Let's not screw around with monetary policy. Okay. When you look at the mix of Stewart in right now, it seems mm-hmm. like it's a technology overlay that everybody's dealing yep. with, whether it's Europe or the United States and that. Yep. Do we just have to get used to one and a half percent growth? I mean, is that, I mean, in President Trump's defense as a politician, he can't, he can't get elected on one and a half or even 2.0% growth. Agreed. And in that sense, I'm not denying President Trump the right to complain and moan. I get my knickers less in a twist about him yelling at the Fed than people do, because I remember past presidents yelling at the Fed because they didn't do things they like. So that's fine. That's fair game, as long as the markets and the average voter realize that's just a politician trying to increase his election chances. The important point is exactly what you said, Tom, that we are unfortunately going to have to continue to adapt to a world where for at least the foreseeable future, we're not going to be seeing an engine of growth like we did. And as Olivier Blanchard, who you mentioned, not for ECB, but for brilliant analysis, did with another colleague of ours, you know, Japan has coped. And part of how Japan coped is they had ongoing fiscal stimulus, ongoing easy money, because the alternative was a cratering economy. Do you see evidence that your colleague, Olivier Blanchard, who wants to goose things up to a 4% level, can that reflation end with economic growth? It can it can't sustain it forever. I mean, Olivier himself, and certainly I, and anybody else is not going to tell you that pure inflation is going to buy you anything. But what you can do is say, I'm not going to worry about inflation in a world where there's so much deflationary low growth pressure, and I'm going to try to push up growth through useful public investment. And as in the case of the ECB, to me, the, the biggest news from the Draghi statement was a very clear emphasis on a symmetric approach to the inflation target, that they'll have to overshoot someday to make up for the low inflation right. now. These are the elements of a sensible policy. Adam Posen, thank you so much. The thank you, Adam. Institute for International uh, Economics. We are thrilled to bring you a gentleman from a military family. Uh, and John McCain gets all the press, the late John McCain of Admirals back 14 generations. I think they were at Bunker Hill or one of those battles as well. He is the grandson of Herbert McChrystal with tours of duty, including the Panama Zone. Your father was born in the Panama Zone. He did a number of tours of duty in Vietnam. And then you wandered in and you began a storied career, General McChrystal, with the Special Forces. What was the first day like of Special Forces at, I believe, Fort Bragg? Well, that's true. I'd left the 82nd Airborne as a lieutenant and joined Special Forces. And it was disappointing because this was 1978, and Special Forces was a few years after Vietnam, and it was a shadow of what it had right, been. Right, exactly. And so I, for much of my career, it was about rebuilding our special operating forces and watching what they, to what they become today. Admiral Stravitas wrote a book about all you guys in your favorite books. What's the book right now the politicians need to read who are talking about military action in the Middle East? What's the book they need to read right now? Well, that's, great. that's a great question. Um, Nothing jumps out at me, at, although I would probably read a book on World War II 
because when you talk about a war, you talk about something that's going to change the world. You better understand what it costs. Edward Lefebvre on FDR would be my choice there, John. General, you've entered civilian life. Uh, you've not done what most generals do, which is go and advise companies and people and organizations on geopolitics. You're running your own firm, and you're helping business understand the importance of leadership, changing the hierarchy to better, better suit their needs. Walk us through your framework for thinking about this and what you're teaching people right now. It came from an experience that we had uh, in Iraq where we had a purpose-built counterterrorism force that was really operating on industrial age processes, top-down command and control hierarchy. And we ran into a complex environment in which al-Qaeda in Iraq was very different. That's exactly what business is running into now. They're not competing against the big competitor they used to have. They're competing against a thousand linked together, although unconsciously linked competitors from garages to small startups. And so as a consequence, size is no longer a protection. It's not a moat to competition. So leaders have got to lead differently. Organizations got to communicate differently. Really the core of this is about how you create shared consciousness in an organization. So the contextual understanding that used to be resident only in the C-suite is now down everywhere so you can make decisions closer to the point of action. You are a student of leadership. I hope you don't mind me saying so, both in terms of the military leadership and in terms of leadership in the business world. Who should we be learning from? Well, I think first is go back and understand that leadership requires character. At the end of the day, if you don't have integrity, if you don't have the kinds of things that you can admire and trust, you're going to be building everything on a, a very weak foundation. I like to go back to leaders like uh, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. Those are the names we all know. But peel back some of the mythology about them and see how they really operated. The one who jumped out in our recent book is Martin Luther King Jr. Because although we think of him as this wonderful orator who stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963 and gave I've Had a Dream, actually he was a roll-up-your-sleeves kind of leader who performed multiple roles for the civil rights movement that were very practical. He was jailed 12 times. And so other than being a symbol, he was a practical leader who built teams. One final question, General. The uh, attack du jour is the offense against Iran. What is our naivete about defensing against or offensing against Iran? Yeah, I think Iran's behavior in the Middle East needs to be stopped and competed against. But if we talk about invading or starting a major war, you're talking about a, an action that would unite 80 million Iranians. They are a sovereign nation that would defend itself to the death. And so you have to ask yourself, what comes next? You have a first strike, then what? And so I think it's a much bigger prospect. And I'm not sure how it would end. I, I, I'm sure that we could defeat Iran, but would we like to? Does the, the Pentagon have a voice with this administration to address the then what's? I can't speak from inside the room. I certainly hope that they do. General McChrystal, thank you so General, much. General, thank you. Thanks for joining us this today. morning. On the American economy, Lindsay Piegza joins us with Stiefel. Thrilled that she could join us this morning. Lindsay, I want to cut right to the chase. Your numbers for American economic growth, can you make a forecast now, or is it so jumbled you're hesitant to look out one year? Well, it is difficult to look out one year because the data is not all pointing in one direction. But of course, to be fair, the data very rarely points in one direction to make it easy for economists. But what we do see is that there's very clearly evidence of weakness. 
not just bubbling underneath the surface, but gaining momentum underneath the surface. We see business investment losing momentum, business confidence beginning to wane, manufacturing taking a hit. Even the consumer, with last week's better-than-expected retail sales report, is still on very uneven footing at best. So this is painting a, a pretty... A pretty negative picture for the second quarter, particularly relative yeah. to that above-trend growth rate we saw at the start of the year. Lindsay, does the Federal Reserve disappoint tomorrow? Well, it's going to be very difficult for the Federal Reserve. I don't think that they change policy in any way, so keeping rates unchanged. But it's going to come down to the comments. It's going to come down to the tone of the statement. And if they fail to tweak the tone to a more dovish position, that will disappoint the market. But I do think that Powell has at least opened the door for the conversation of a rate well, as we saw he removed that patient language from his earlier comments just a few weeks ago at that Fed Listens event. What is your 12-month forward economic growth? Is it above 2%? No, it's not. I, in fact, I don't think the longer-run growth rate for the economy is above 2%. Okay, but what's your number for 12 months forward? I think that we're looking at 1.5%. Okay, fine. That's the J.P. Morgans with Lindsay Piagas-Stiffel. I like that. Great. What is Powell waiting for? I mean, I sound like President Trump, but if you're modeling and other adults are modeling Lindsay, sub 2% GDP, why, why do they need to be patient? Well, I, I think the Fed has a historical position of waiting until the data very clearly shows that the economy is essentially falling off of a cliff. But we also know that historically the Fed waits too late. And then sure. uh, when they begin to cut rates, they're unable to <coughs> stave off that weakness. So I'm not sure if the Fed is relying on very antiquated models that's telling them to take this more patient stance, or this could be more of a political posturing. They don't want to be seen as cowing to the whims of the market or political pressures out of the administration. Lindsay, did President Draghi ramp up the pressure for Chairman Powell tomorrow, or did he reduce some of it? How do you frame that this morning for our listeners? Well, it's, uh, it's difficult because the ECB is certainly taking a, a much more patient stance without even using the word patient. And so I do think that when we look out to our developed counterparts that are saying, look, rate cuts are, are on the table. That's, that's part of our policy going forward. Uh, we see the BOJ still actively engaged in asset purchases. It's very difficult for the Fed to continue to push against that string, not only on a relative basis, but on a nominal basis when we yeah. see such clear weakness in the fundamentals, as we talked about some of those growth fundamentals, we didn't even mention the weak levels of inflation that yeah. we're seeing in the U.S. Lindsay, thank you so much. Dr. Piggs, it was Stiefel. We try to give you the best in conversation. Adam Posen this morning was just brilliant with the Peterson Institute on what's left in the toolkit for central bankers. We now give you, without question, the interview of the day on price change. 21 years ago, almost to the day, Gary Schilling put out a small blue book. It was called Deflation. Yeah, big deal. But it had a secondary headline, as is the Vogue, that was stunningly prescient. Why it's coming, whether it's good or bad, and how it will affect your investments, business, and personal affairs. It is the call of a generation Gary Schilling on less inflation and lower yields. Dr. Schilling, wonderful to have you with us today. I got to go to the headline right now, price up, yield down, and you say yields are going to go ever lower. 
Yeah, I think so. I think we're going to go to 1% on the 10-year Treasury. And How do we 2%. get there? Is it a yield move or is it just price and insatiable demand for bonds? Well, it's a combination of things. It's the fact that we have low inflation and, and very well could have deflation. Uh, we're probably entering a recession now, which is always beneficial to Treasuries, knocks down, knocks down inflation, makes them a safe haven. Uh, the yields, as low as they are in this country, are higher than almost any other major sovereign. Uh, there's a, and there's, a, there's, there's simply the attraction that, that people say, where else am I going to go now uh, with money? But, you know, it's interesting. I think that the bond market is telling you the economy is a lot weaker than the stock market. And I think the history says that bond investors have a better view of what's going on than stock investors. Well, there's a split there right now going on. Futures up 18. The, uh, the Dow uh, futures up 139, 26,277. Can you participate in equities this morning? Um, well, we're doing in our portfolios defensively, things like utilities and consumer staples. Um, yeah, I think you have some participation, but our principal interests are long treasuries and I like the 30-year zero mm -hmm. bond. You get the most bang per buck. And right. For a given decline in interest rates, you get much more price appreciation. As you know, Tom, uh, since 1981, I've owned treasury bonds for only one reason, appreciation. I couldn't care less what, what the yield is. What was the coupon then? 14%? 14.6%. Yeah. 14.6%. Yeah. And you still own the same paper you owned back then? Well, you have to roll it over. I mean, <laughs> there isn't an issue that was... But that, that, Okay, this is important. We're going to rip up the script here. This is so important. The institutional shell game now is to roll it over. And they're saying to themselves, we're at 3% coupon and we're going to go down to a 2.8% coupon. At some point, that game ends, right? Well, sure, and and I think it I think it ends to say when you get to two percent on a thirty-year bond. Uh, but at that point, it depends whether you go whether they're whether they're attractive or not. And in other words, the appreciation game would be over then. Okay, that's fine. But what's the price to our economy to have a two percent thirty-year piece? Well, that that's a very interesting point because uh, unless the Fed wants to go negative on on rates, and the Fed doesn't. They've seen that with the ECB and the and the Bank of Japan. Right. And what happens? People don't borrow to spend. They save more because their assets are not uh, giving them a return for their retirement or whatever. So they don't want to go negative. They're zero bound. So uh, right. it puts the Fed in a bind. And, and of course, they, there was an interesting study by the Fed Board economists last year where they basically said quantitative easing, again, is the only answer. Is there a physics to quantitative easing? We should point out that Dr. Schilling enjoys a shingle in physics as well. I mean, if I look at the inertial force of monetary policy, the reaction functions, I get it. Is there a physics to quantitative easing? Is, is there a, a theory you can glean? Uh, <laughs> maybe a law of diminishing returns. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's going to be <clears throat> QA sync, according to Mario Draghi this morning. Ten-year yield... 2.03% as well. Japan's buying Apple shares or whatever they're doing, buying equity equivalents. This isn't in your textbooks from Amherst. No. A few years ago, no, is it? No, it isn't. And, you know, one of the interesting things now is the Fed, and uh, Phil Graham had a, had a piece in today's journal on this, the Fed is being forced to lower the rate they pay banks on reserves because that's a better deal now than, than one-year What treasuries. is the appropriate... If Ben Bernanke says the banks are the appropriate... Uh, support that we need for the economy to to have a supportive financial system to help us. What is the best Fed policy prescription now for Jamie Dimon? Well, <laughs> the best 
policy for him would, would be obviously a positive yield curve uh, because the we banks, have that but banks to some extent yeah well slightly but slightly. the banks still suffer from this but you know I think the I think the what what we've really seen uh, in the last 30 years is the Fed becoming the great supporter of equities uh, they, they they certainly did this coming out of the Great Recession with knocking yields down to basically zero and then quantitative easing. And then we got the Greenspan put, we got the Bernanke put, the Yellen put, and now it looks like we have the Powell put. And it seems right. as though the Fed looks on their number one job as supporting equities, and they look on that as the, as the indicator okay. of the economy. But what it does, Tom, it gives you a big buildup to a big decline. Greenspan said you don't worry about you don't worry about excesses and so on. You clean up the mess after the bubble breaks. Well, it was a big bubble that Why broke in 2007. Why are we to break the bubble and clean up the mess? On a Hayekian basis, we have to clear the market, don't we? We, we do have, have to clear. But, but you know what? You've got two ways of doing it. You can do this step by step as you go along, which creates discipline in the system, the, the fear versus greed. Or you can do what we did earlier, was simply let it run, let it run, let it run. You build up this huge thing. In that case, it was subprime mortgage lending. And then you have a huge collapse, a huge catharsis. Now, I, I would prefer the step-by-step -step keeping things in line. But the Fed seems to be on this track now where they don't want okay. to disturb things. And the inevitable is a big buildup and then a crash. I don't see the crash coming now. I don't see the mechanism, but... Um, human nature hasn't changed. It's there somewhere. How do you respond to Barclays and David Blanchflower yesterday telling us they need to get away from a Greenspanian measured and get back to an Arthur Burnsian 50 basis point rate cut at some point? Is it good to get off the measured track? Uh, if you need that kind of if you need that kind of shock, if you need that. Do we kind need of, that kind of shock right now? Uh, not right now. No, but but you very well could. I mean, you know, the thing about the economy is you never know where you are now until much mm -hmm. later. It wasn't until December of 2008 that the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is the official arbiter of recessions, declared that the business had peaked a year earlier in December of 2007. Right. And, of course, with the <clears throat> delays, the revisions, and so on, you never know where you are. So it, it really yeah. means the Fed is always behind the curve when they're reacting to the economy as one, it goes along. One final question. You've written uh, numerous times for Bloomberg Opinion on China. Do we underestimate China's resiliency as an economy? Um, no, I don't think so. I think, I think China has got a lot of problems. Now, they have a top-down economy, and it's sort of like the Fed. You know, it's one of these things that works until it doesn't work. Uh, in a democratic system, you can have gradual yeah. changes. We see that in India. We see that in the U.S. We see that in the U.K., but in China, it's one of these deals where the guys on top control it, and she is putting in more right. and more controls. Uh, they're even watching school teachers. Everybody works for the government, and that works until you until it just it just blows up. Look what's happening in Hong Kong. You get over a million people in the streets. Right. It's it's a it's a it's a different system, no. but it's it's much less orderly in the in the long run. I got like eight more questions, but we don't have any time. Dr. Schilling with us today. I throw his book at the young, Deflation, Why It's Coming, Whether It's Good or Bad, and How It Will Affect Your Investments, Business, and Personal Affairs. It's just out 21 years ago. <laughs> We're looking for the 4th of July movie here, 2028, uh, Market's 30th anniversary. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. 
Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 